And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked around about on them, with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and the, uh, the hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. This will be one of the hardest sermons to write and preach, mostly because I feel confronted with one of what I think is my abiding sins. Indeed, I see it in so many Christians, especially in the Reformed world. And I value when I do not see this sin in others who have a heart more reflective of the heart of Jesus demonstrated in this story. Unfortunately, often I find those who exhibit this heart fail to reflect Jesus' character in other respects. Imitating the perfect man defies our easy efforts, and so imitating Christ is going to be a challenge. So much about us as his people needs to change. And the church as a whole need one another to challenge our weaknesses and to learn from our strengths. But enough with the abstract and the implicit. Let me spoil the ending for you right here blatantly by telling you this, this story's lesson. We need to have a heart of compassion that does not give way to lawlessness. This is the big idea for this sermon and this section of Scripture. To have a heart of compassion that does not give way to lawlessness. This is the example of Christ. This is the practice we rarely see in the church. For we have grown too familiar with either lawless compassion or obedient coldness. And I confess that in my own heart, I all too often find the latter. It took me a while to realize that this story wasn't really about the Sabbath. In fact, I even thought about going back and changing the title, and I may do so if I ever preach the sermon again. Because I don't think Mark tells us this story as a conflict over rules regulating the Sabbath. The story isn't intended as a proof text for excusing the work of doctors, nurses, and police officers. The story appears to show Jesus in conflict with calloused hearts of people. In this final story in the section on conflict, Mark places Jesus in a poorly hidden conflict with the Pharisees. In this story, we see the ambush of the Pharisees, the address to the Pharisees, and the attack of the Pharisees. The ambush of the Pharisees, the address to the Pharisees, and the attack of the Pharisees. It's almost childishly humorous, the scene that Mark sets before the audience in the gospel. We find Jesus in another Sabbath skirmish with the Pharisees, but this time facing a kind of trap. And we see the bait and the weight. 
sometimes my uh, my phraseology even confounds me. Another Sabbath has come with another conflict. We see that in verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there that which had a withered hand. Commentators debate the meaning of the term again in this verse. It may mean that this is a different Sabbath than the previous story. Or, and it might indicate a return to the synagogue of Capernaum. This uh, synagogue we saw back in chapter 1, verse 21. Capernaum was the last geographical marker that we saw in chapter 2, verse 1. It would explain how Jesus would return again to the same synagogue in which Mark had recorded his healing and teaching. His healing at that point was by casting out the demon out of a possessed man. And Mark sets the stage for the inevitable healing. There, Jesus is in the synagogue, again, maybe the exact same synagogue in which he cast out the demon-possessed man. There, someone is attending the synagogue with a physical deformity. It differs from the previous miracle uh, that shocked the crowd. We remember in chapter 1 that Jesus cast out the demon on the Sabbath day, and no one commented on his work whether from shock or the assumption of necessity. After all, the removal of someone disrupting uh, the Lord's worship could not be seen as a problem even on the Sabbath day, even to Sabbath legalists. Now, this opportunity for work appears on the synagogue, and Mark mentions this man uh, raising the audience's expectations that Jesus will heal him. You get to the end of of verse 1, and you think, well, we know what's going to happen. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There's a man with a withered hand. What do you think is going to happen? But instead, Mark introduces Jesus' opponents in verse 2. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Now, these observers are not friendly people. This group does not look to Jesus merely to see a miracle. They are looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus of doing something sinful on the Sabbath. Now, I've called these people Pharisees, although Mark does not use this title in this verse. But when you look at verse 6, you can see why I've made this supposition. As Mark names the Pharisees in the aftermath of the event, it seems nearly unavoidable that they function as those who are lying in wait in this verse. They seem almost puerile, almost childlike, almost so petty. There they are in the midst of the synagogue, and they are sitting there, not with compassion in their hearts about this poor man with the withered hand, who obviously is probably in pain and has affected his life in in a great, great extent. They are there, kind of lying in wait. They are looking at Jesus, expecting him to do something, which they can jump up and say, Aha, you have done something wrong. It's the attitude we might expect of people below the age of ten, not of grown men. But let's, let's keep going and consider how ludicrous the Pharisees act in this verse. They expect Jesus to do something. They expect Jesus to heal this man. They want Jesus to perform a miracle. They want Jesus to do something to prove his messianic identity and his divine authority. And they want to use that work to prove 
that he's a sinner. Does that make any sense? They want to prove Jesus is a sinner by a supernatural work of divine healing. It's as if if God chooses to perform a work of healing on the Sabbath, they would accuse God of sin. After all, if God does heal on the Sabbath day, doesn't that invalidate their traditions? The insanity of what the Pharisees are doing and wanting to do and intending to prove staggers the mind. That they could use a divine healing as evidence of someone's sinfulness. The sad fact is that Satan has planted Pharisaism into the hearts of many Christians. When you hear someone has helped another person, does your heart ever say, well, they didn't do it the right way? Have you ever looked into your heart and found that you are looking for reasons to criticize someone else's compassion? I say this not because I think of it in an abstract, but I see it in my own heart. And I can think of no uglier uglier character than to condemn another person's compassion needlessly. There are needful reasons to judge act of mercy. If compassion leads to sin, if it leads others to sin, if it encourages sin in ourselves and others, then yes, we must judge that work of compassion according to God's word. But our preferences are not God's word. Our perspective often isn't conformed to God's word. Our perspective often reflects more of the Pharisee's attitude than it does what God's word teaches. Let us therefore repent of the times when we have laid in wait for an opportunity to illegitimately criticize another's compassion. Let us repent for the assumption that sowing compassion is a sign of heterodoxy. That the very act that we have compassion on someone else is a sign that we have given way to false doctrine. We see the ambush of the Pharisees, but secondly, let us see the address to the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't avoid the situation or choose a subversive course. He will do so later on in uh, the gospel. He will take people that need healing off to the side and in secret do the healing, but he doesn't do so in this situation. He meets the situation head on and takes a direct approach with a direct question. Jesus literally brings the conflict to center stage. Look at verse 3. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. In the previous story, the demon-possessed man had taken the initiative to confront Jesus. Now Jesus, knowing by divine wisdom the attitude of those who lie in wake, takes the initiative to confront his would-be accusers. He tells the man, stand forth. The Greek reads, arise into the middle. Jesus places the man front and center. Some uh, commentators assume that synagogues were kind of in the round where people sat on the side and then the person preaching or teaching was in the middle. And Jesus is putting this man front and center. Imagine the astonishment of those who are lying in wait, Jesus' ambushers, when they see their bait dangled in front of them. We would be amazed if while fishing, a fish took our lure, popped his head out of the water and 
jingled his lure at us tauntingly. We would know that we had been outsmarted. But Jesus doesn't do this to display his superiority over the Pharisees. He doesn't do this in order to embarrass this disabled man. He is doing it because he is intending to confront a sin. The sin appears in his question. Look at verse 4. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. Here we see the third use of the Greek term, meaning, Is it right? What is right to do on the Sabbath? And so the Lord of the Sabbath, as he has declared himself to be in the previous story, now asks this question. And he's not asking it because he needs people to inform him about the law or its right interpretation. He is the ultimate lawgiver. He is the one who interprets authoritatively what the law of the Sabbath is. He asks not to bring new information to the people or to change their minds. The principle that he is questioning is so self-evident and obvious that none could object or criticize his application. It's a perfect example of a rhetorical question. No one is going to try to argue the opposite. What is right to do on the Sabbath? Good or bad? Well, duh. It's the Sabbath. You do good on the Sabbath. What is right to do on the Sabbath? to save life or to kill life. Duh. We know it's, we are to save life on the Sabbath. The Pharisees' own traditions reflected the importance of saving life on the Sabbath. They had an exception to the law, which normally forbid doctors from practicing their craft on the Sabbath. But they could practice uh, their work if life was in danger. Doctors could intervene for things that were unavoidable, like giving birth, or for events that proved life-threatening. But this disability was not life-threatening. It probably limited his work and his earning potential, but nothing in this story indicates that the situation with this man with the withered hand was urgent. But conversely, the question that arises is, was Jesus working by healing supernaturally? He's not, by trade, a doctor. If we would make any application of this verse to our Lord's Day practice, we may say that the Lord's Day has an external aspect to it. Our worship looks outward toward God. And our help of others has an other focus. For there is a world of difference between harvesting your field on the Lord's Day to increase your outward estate and helping someone change their tire on the side of the road on the Lord's Day. You could criticize the per person helping someone change the tire on the Lord's Day. They're working. They don't have to do that on the Lord's Day. But that's exactly the same attitude that is reflected in some of the harshest critics that Jesus criticizes in his gospel. After all, of all the days in the week in which we ought to have our eyes open for opportunities for mercy ministry, the Lord's day, I believe, tops the list. Consider what the fourth commandment says about 
giving rest to your subordinates. It says that, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath is a day and the, the Sabbath is a day of rest to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, or the ox or your cattle. The householder has a responsibility to give rest to everyone in his family, those he has control over, his children, his servants. The principle suggests that we are, as far as we are able, to give people reasons to see the Lord's Day as blessed, as special, as restful. As we find delight in the Lord's Day, we are to encourage others to find it delightful as well. Unfortunately, some commentators have seen, have used this and the preceding statements of Jesus to eviscerate any regulation of work on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. But that isn't the point. Jesus' question assumes rules for the Sabbath. There is a right and a wrong way to observe the Sabbath. He assumes the law of right and wrongs for things to do on the day that the Lord separates for himself and his people. But he challenges the question of work. Is divine healing of a disabled man work? Is Jesus forcing God to work in healing a man? Can Jesus coerce the Lord into violating the Sabbath day? Does not even the question sound kind of absurd? What then should Almighty God do on the Sabbath day? Should he allow one of his people to suffer one moment longer than necessary? Should not the Sabbath day include events of great and powerful deliverance? This is the substance of what Jesus is asking. This is why he is asking these questions to these people to get them to reevaluate what they know axiomatically is the truth, but how they apply that truth to the Sabbath and to this man. Why should the Lord, because it's the Sabbath day, wait one moment for deliverance? Is not the Sabbath day a remembrance of deliverance? As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you will remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you will remember the Sabbath day. This is why I proclaim the gospel every Lord's day and every sermon. For it sounds so abhorrent and grotesque to say the Lord's day should not be the time when the Holy Spirit works powerfully to save people. For that attitude is the heart of the Pharisee. And my friend, I cannot be that cool. I may struggle with the same sin of coolness of heart, but not in this manner. I cannot, I cannot and will not call you to stand in the middle of the congregation, but you already know that you stand before the Lord God. You know that your problem is not a withered hand, but a dried up and defiled soul. You know that before God you deserve death and hell for your sin. But God, being rich in love and mercy, chose a Savior, a healer of souls, Jesus, that one that stood in the synagogue with compassion. His compassion for sinners brought God uh, to earth in the man of Christ Jesus. 
That compassion led him to live a sinless life. It drove him to the cross to offer the sacrifice to take away sin. He rose from the grave to show the fulfillment of all that was needed to heal his people and to bring them to heaven. By faith, that healing may be yours. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you, and that it is able to make your soul live? Will you turn from that which brings death of soul and walk in the way of Jesus? We see the ambush of the Pharisees and the address of the Pharisees, and finally the attack of the Pharisees. The Pharisees will not stand by and let Jesus win, but they also face some ineptness. Mark contrasts in the conflict Jesus' heartache of sin against the Pharisees' heart, allies of sin. No one answers Jesus. At the end of verse 4, no one says a word. They held their peace. No one dares to challenge the rightness of his implication. No one answers the rhetorical question. And so Jesus looks at them. Verse 5, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved, for the hardness of their hearts. Mark uses three terms in this verse that he never uses again in the rest of his gospel. And they appear, these words appear not as proof of the inauthenticity of this, go- this verse, but in stark vividness of Jesus' extreme response. Though extreme, his emotional reaction correctly fits the situation that he faces. He looks around at the assembled group with anger, Mark notes. Anger does not have a good reputation in Christian circles. Jesus responds well, but not in ways that excuse most of our anger. As Bishop Ryle writes in this section, of all the feelings that man, man's heart experiences, there is none, perhaps, which so soon runs into sin as the feeling of anger. There is none which once excited seems less under control. There is none which leads on to so much evil. We may rest assured that there is no human feeling which needs so much cautious guarding as this. A sinless wrath is a rare thing. The wrath of man is seldom for the glory of God. In every case, a righteous indignation should be mingled with grief and sorrow for those who cause it, even as it was for the case of our Lord. We ought to exercise the caution of Ryle when we consider our own anger to be righteous indignation. We ought to ask what the object of that anger is. Here Jesus is responding to the calloused hearts of the people. He sees the wreck that religious legalism has wrought, cooling the compassion of the faithful. In this synagogue, Jesus sees some who apparently could not care less for this poor man. He sees some who would, like another leader of the synagogue, tell this man to wait until tomorrow to be healed. Did Jesus see any compassion in the hearts of those who were silently sitting in the synagogue? But the more troubling question is, would he see any here? How would, how does Jesus look at his people today? 
We can become so obsessed with the law that we forget compassion. We can fear the violation of liberal theology so much that we see compassion as the enemy to orthodoxy. But we especially need to learn to live with more compassion. We need to be bold enough and strong enough to suffer the heartbreak that compassion requires. Emotional strength often appears not in impassivity, but in tears. Compassion for those whom we may not be able to help. I love the way that the Lord Jesus deftly deflects any accusation of healing, of sin in this healing. Look at verse 5. He said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. All Jesus does is give a command. He doesn't, as he will later, do anything to the man. He doesn't wave his hand over the the withered hand. He doesn't touch it. He doesn't make uh, spit on it. He doesn't make uh, mud and smear it over it, as he will do elsewhere in this very same gospel. Instead, he utters words that in the synagogue where Moses was read, they might have recognized. Would it not have been the height of divine irony if that morning's lesson had come from Exodus chapter 14, where God tells Moses, lift up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. When I, heard, when I read this here in, in Luke, I, I, bells and whistles and warning sounds went out of my head, so I did a little research. This exact phrase in the Greek shows up in the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, predominantly and almost exclusively in the book of Exodus. You will find it in Exodus 7, 19, 9, 22, 10, 21, uh, 14, 16, and 26. And it occurs when the Lord is telling Moses to stretch out his hand to bring plagues upon Egypt to deliver his people. In this context, no one could mistake the true source of the healing work. No one could say, well, Jesus was doing some kind of magic or mysticism or you know, had special powers or this was a, an unknown uh, remedy for the witheredness of the hand. This is the work of the divine God coming through a statement that echoes the work of the divine God in the Old Testament. The Lord has acted again in power and majesty to save his people. But the irony continues. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Pharisees are, well, childish is to put it lightly. We first see an alliance between the Pharisees, a religious subdivision, and the Herodians, probably a political subdivision. The exact uh, interpretation or understanding of who these Herodians were is a bit unclear. It appears that they supported the dynasty of Herod the Great. Uh, This would include the family's association and collaboration with the hated Romans. And it seems very strange that these two groups would choose to work together. 
And though Mark does not record the Herodians' objection to Jesus, why they would choose to partner up with the Pharisees, the Pharisees probably saw the Herodians as a group that had political clout that they could use against Jesus. We don't know why the Herodians were so incensed against him, but we may infer that they saw Jesus as a political threat to the Herodian dynasty. What we do know is the subject of their plot. They are seeking to kill Jesus. And the irony is, remember what Jesus just said? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus has done good on the Sabbath day by by doing good and healing the man. And the Pharisees, who would have agreed that that is what they are to do, that will agree that they are to save life, spend the, Lord, spend the Sabbath day plotting to kill. Jesus does what is right on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees, who were trying to trap Jesus, are doing what is wrong. The Pharisees on the Sabbath do it on the Sabbath day. If you need any proof that it was still the Sabbath day, Mark clues you with that ver- word in verse 6, that one, one of his po- most popular, immediately. They didn't wait. The healing of the man takes place immediately. The Pharisees seek to kill Jesus. This popular word shows up here astonishingly regarding the enemies of Jesus. Their haste to plot will not lead to immediate action, though. This is Mark chapter 3, the very beginning of Mark chapter 3. You've got quite a few more chapters to go before we even get to uh, the plot seeking any kind of fulfillment. And yet Mark has cast the harbinger of death over the gospel at this point. We already know that things are not probably going to end well as these powerhouses of influence have teamed up against him. To Mark's Roman Gentile audience that I usually like to bring up, because I think we ought to understand who Mark is writing to and understand it through their eyes, they see the compassion of Jesus in conflict with the hard-hearted Pharisees who grow so incensed at his obvious power that they choose contradictory allies, one known for their, probably known for their cooperation with Rome and an irrational plot. To them, this would be a story of Jesus wins against the hard-hearted Pharisees who make strange alliances out of their irrational anger. To them, they would say, these guys are rather nuts. Here are religious leaders who want to destroy someone who exercises obviously divine powers. They claim to be those who worship this God, and yet the one who is able to do what this God does, they want to destroy. What more than a healing done in the synagogue on the, Lord's, on the Sabbath could more clearly show the Lord's seal on Jesus' person and work? Well, if he'd done it in the temple, that probably would be a little bit better, but it's pretty clear. And yet the Pharisees cannot accept it. How hard and how calloused must their hearts be. 
but I am like them. I, it pains me to admit this truth, but to deny it would be to lie. And I do so believing that I am not alone in my confession. For the Reformed community, so passionate about the truth, so dedicated to the Word, so devoted to God's law, often finds itself to be fertile soil for Satan's seed of Pharisaism and an icebox of cold hearts. It's important for us to recognize that compassion isn't a one-sized-fits-all work. We use this word like compassion and help and throw it around as if we automatically know what it means and how it ought to be applied. We often identify compassion with engagement as if this were the only true and right way to show compassion. This is the compassion that Jesus shows in this verse. But compassion does not always look like engagement. Compassion also looks like Jesus saying, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Compassion also looks like this, Deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We don't often associate that with compassion, but if you think about it, it's probably one of the most compassionate things someone can do. To seek to save the spirit through the destruction of the flesh. Make no mistake, the exercise of church discipline is a work of compassion. And that is why it should always be attended with tears. The work of compassion requires discernment but also a heart that responds to the suffering of souls. Let not the work, let not the law regulating the work of compassion quench the heartache of another's soul misery. And let us have a heart of compa compassion resulting in good works that are regulated by God's word. Let us pray together. Forgive, O Lord. Forgive us when we have given rein to the heart of the Pharisee. Today you have shown us the heart of our Savior, and we pray that you would help us to imitate him. Let not our orthodoxy quench our compassion, and let not our compassion overrule your word. Rather, let us imitate our Savior. Hear our prayer in his name. Amen.